Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, the Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. In this episode, the National Constitution Center travels to Arizona State University in Phoenix for a conversation on the center's landmark constitution drafting project. Drafting team members, Caroline Fredrickson, Timothy Sandifer, and Ilan Worman discuss their approaches to constitution design, the various amendments they agreed on, and the project's importance in today's constitutional environment. Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. This program is presented in partnership with the Center for Constitutional Design at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Thank you so much, uh, Dean Lindquist, and welcome, friends. I'm so excited to be here, an emissary from the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, bringing this project, which is so full of light, here to Arizona State. And it's so exciting that you're going to reconvene in the spring and hold an actual convention to discuss the amendments. Friends, this was one of the most uplifting and optimistic projects that the NCC has been privileged to sponsor. As uh, Dean Lanquist said, we brought together three teams of America's greatest libertarian, progressive, and conservative constitutional scholars and asked them to draft constitutions from scratch. We were surprised that the constitutions they produced had many areas of overlap, so we reconvened them for a Zoom convention, and in a state of nature or a state of Zoom, they produced five amendments to the Constitution. And it just blew our minds that in just several days of deliberation, which were of such high quality that I felt like I was watching actual founders uh, reinvent the the Constitution and... um, they 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 agreed on five amendments in these in this polarized age. The fact that they were able to agree on these amendments is a sign for hope, and it's going to be incredibly meaningful to have these students from across the country thoughtfully debating them. And if your convention is able to uh, ratify even one of these amendments, it'll be a real testament to the possibility for uh, constitutional agreement. And even if they don't, we know they'll have a civil debate. Okay, so let me first of all thank. Uh, Stephanie Linquist, Dottie Knox, Karen Sung, Alina McNeil, and the and all your great colleagues here at the Center for Constitutional Design at Arizona State University. You're doing such innovative work, and it's just been wonderful to be your partner. Uh, I will introduce our uh, remarkable panel of constitutional solons, and we will then uh, jump right in. Uh, Ilan. Warman was the leader of Team Conservative. He's an associate professor here at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Thank you, Ilan, for welcoming us to this great university. His latest book is the second founding and introduction to the 14th Amendment, so eagerly uh, called for by my constitutional law students that it's become a definitive text on the meaning of the second founding. Congrats on that great book and on your a uh, book before that, The Constitution of 1789, an introduction that's actually forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. Caroline Fredrickson is the leader of Team Progressive. She is a distinguished visitor from practice at Georgetown Law Center and a senior fellow at the Brennan Center. Before that, she was the president of the American Constitution Society, where her pathbreaking 
work with the NCC and with her counterparts at the Federalist Society led to the nomination of 80 of America's greatest liberal and conservative scholars to write about every clause in the Constitution. That was an amazing partnership as well, Caroline. She is the author of several great books, including The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections, and the AOC Way. And Tim Sandifer was head of Team Libertarian, uh, or rather he was a member of Team Libertarian, which was led by Ilya Shapiro. Uh, Tim is the Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Goldwater Institute's Sharf Norton Center for Constitutional Litigation. He holds the Duncan Chair in Constitutional Government. He's the author of eight books, including, this is such a great title, most recently, Freedom's Furies, How Isabel Patterson, Rose Wilder Lane, and Ayn Rand Found Liberty in an Age of Darkness, as well as, who can resist, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. Great to welcome all of you here in uh, Arizona. Elon, you are, we're here on your home turf. Why don't you just, uh, why don't we have an opening round of introductions mm -hmm. about, c concretely, what, what you hope that these delegates, when they convene to discuss your amendments, will know? And how do you want to f describe your deliberations within your team that produce these five amendments? So thanks so much for coming to Arizona for a change. It's, it was a delight to roll out of bed. Well, not exactly roll out of bed. I mean, I did do that earlier this morning, but Slept a five-minute drive <laughs> to get here. Um, so this project, I think, is really important for a number of reasons. And as um, Jeff Rosen already suggested, the fact that you could get conservatives, libertarians, and progressives to agree on anything, let alone amendments to the Constitution, proposed amendments to the Constitution, I think is an in inspiration Pedagogically, I think it's valuable. I think it's valuable to show that we could still have civil discourse. And as a self-proclaimed originalist, um, I think it is extraordinarily important that we amend the Constitution in the next 50 years, okay? Because, you know, the, the, the title of my first book, which I thought is what you were going for originally, is called A Debt Against the Living. It's this idea that this Constitution creates a binding debt against future generations. The idea being it was supposed to create stability, it was supposed to be enduring in many ways, it was a, an improvement upon the natural condition of the world that justified continuing adherence to it. But on the other hand, the founders, the framers of 1787, rejected many of the constitutions of 1776. So, Again, stability for the sake of stability, conservatism for the sake of conservatism, it doesn't work. At some point, the people will think that the Constitution is too old and too outdated, such that perhaps it should be abandoned. So I really think that as conservatives, you know, as if you're an originalist, if you're conservative, if you're happy that you've, you've procured six votes on the Supreme Court, I'm not even sure you know, that, that they have, but nevertheless, that doesn't mean the Constitution is perfect. It just doesn't, it doesn't mean that that's true. And so I think it's very, very important that, that we do that um, in the next few decades. I don't, and so the hopes here for the mini convention is that, I don't know, you know uh, would, would smart college students and law students be, they're probably a special class of citizen. They're probably a bit more precocious and extraordinary than maybe you know, the ordinary citizen. But the hope would be, that if they can come to agreement, you know, we're just a bunch of academics, okay? So may, maybe academics have a special view of the world. We tend to be collegial. You know, in the real world, there's a lot less collegiality, I think, when it comes to political battles like this. But the hope is that these students could come together and 
if they can come to agreement on any of these, I think that is a nice indication that these amendments are actually possible. This wasn't just a pedagogical exercise. I mean, it mostly was. Let's be real, okay? But I don't think it was just that. These are really plausible structural reforms that we'll go through, you know, legislative veto, um, impeachment reform, appointment and confirmation reform. And I really, I don't know, this gives me hope, if you will, that we can actually amend the Constitution again, as, as hard as it, as it might seem right now. You're so right. It would be such an affirmation of the promise for agreement, and that's why so much hangs on it. Caroline Fredrickson, Elon mentioned several of the amendments, uh, impeachment reform, amendment reform, resurrecting the legislative veto, uh, and also ending the natural-born citizenship requirement, uh, among others. Uh, what do you want to tell us about the deliberations that led you to that agreement? Well, and I would say Supreme Court term limits is one that um, that was also um, part of the group. Um, so I also want to repeat the thanks um, of, that have already been, been given to everybody, to all of you, to our hosts. Um, this has been a tremendous project, and so for that I would really like to you know thank especially Jeff and the National Constitution Center. Um, I have really found it to be a fascinating and hugely beneficial enterprise, um, in part because I've learned so much from the people with whom I've collaborated, um, and also because I think it was this very positive um, affirmation of the possibility of finding common ground, despite the fact that when you first start off, you think there's no way that these people will ever figure out anything they can agree on, right? Um, but we did, and in a way that was very, very collegial, um, and extraordinary. I think what we, the, the amendments that we came up with, I'm very, very proud of. Um, we all made concessions. I think that was a really important, it was a real negotiation. Um, uh, people talked about the merits and demerits of different ideas and, and compromised. Um, and, and that was a truly uh, unusual experience in some ways. I mean, I you know, live in Washington and I've spent a lot of time, I worked on Capitol Hill for a long time. Um, I, um, I was really you know, very gratified by that process. Um, and I do think that um, the amendments that we agreed upon um, were all very meaningful. They weren't just kind of, you know, the easy things. Um, we spent a lot, I mean, there were more, where I think if we'd had a few more days, we might have actually come to agreement on a few other areas um, where we began to really get into some, um, um, into some detail about the Electoral College, about redistricting, um, uh, some kind of uh, amendment that would have proposed uh, a redistricting commission independent, such as you wise people in Arizona have adopted. Um, but we didn't have enough time and we couldn't quite, quite, quite get that done. But what we did get done, especially the amendment on amendments, I mean, I, I can't tell you how hard that was. Um, Article 5 is part of the Constitution that not a lot of people are really familiar with. Um, except to say that you know it's really hard to amend our Constitution. And that was one area where we all agreed it's really too hard. Um, and just to pick up on something, also to thank Elon, because I must say he has really, he, he, he did a lot of the initial groundwork in terms of comparing the three Constitutions and helping identify um, areas of, of, of natural um, compromise. Um, um, but just on one last note, and my sort of hopes for the future, I do think the last constitutional amendment that was adopted was actually proposed 
was kind of resurfaced by, by a student, who was a college student. Yes. Um, and so who knows what might come out of this convention. Maybe this will be the source of the next constitutional amendment. Bravo. Uh, that would be a wonderful outcome. And in fact, students are able not only to deliberate on your amendments, but to propose their own. And you identified two big areas, electoral college reform and redistricting reform, that they might want to address and very eager to see what else they come up with. You also identified the central importance of, of, of compromise and deliberation. And I was so struck listening to the Zoom by how high quality the debate was and the fact that it was informed by all of your deep knowledge of constitutional law and history, which gave you a common vocabulary. There was an amazing moment where you were debating whether or not a state official who'd been impeached should be able to run okay. for state or federal office after he left, and people had informed views on that. And that was an important part of the collaboration. And it'll be, the students are all law students, it'll be great to see them rise to your high level. Great, great points. Tim Sandiford, tell us about Team Libertarian, which came in, as Ilya Shapiro said, with the presumption that the only amendment should be, we mean it, <laughs> after each clause. Uh, but in the end, uh, agreed to these five amendments. <coughs> yes, well, uh, the point has been made before that uh, Elon did a, a lot of work in setting up how we operated, but it wasn't just in, in choosing sort of the subject area, it was also our rules of procedure. Mm -hmm. And I, that was a very important step, was deciding how we would structure our, our deliberations. And, you know, law is the enterprise of subjecting human activity to the government of rules. And so that's what lawyers deal with is rules. And in this case, it's rules about rules, and actually rules about rules about rules. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're trying to design the machinery or tinker with the machinery. And I think a lot of people, a lot of non-lawyers especially, think that what constitutional law people do is argue about the meaning of free speech or, or, or what should be a right or shouldn't be a right and everything. And that is, of course, a lot of what we do. But it's also a lot of the discussion is of the machinery of how, how rather than what gets done by government, which of course will determine to some extent, to a major extent, the degree to which our freedoms are protected. So, and that of course is, is my central concern as a libertarian. My primary concern is protecting individual rights to the, to the maximum extent possible. And with that in mind, I will confess, I approached the entire project with a degree of skepticism uh, that I would uh, uh, like to attribute to people like George Mason or Patrick Henry at the Philadelphia <laughs> Convention. The, um, Henry was not at the Philadelphia Convention for just this reason. Um, and so I was nervous about what would be proposed and how we would do our deliberations. And I, I, think, uh, I think I made myself a bit of a gadfly in some of our yeah. discussions for just that reason, because my primary concern is not how do we get more laws passed, because we have too many already, but rather how do we better protect individual rights and so it was very interesting to see the dynamic operating in that respect. Another very interesting uh, thing for a, a constitutional law person like myself was to, was, as you mentioned, about compromise. It was compromise on one hand, but of course it's also sticking to your principles on the other. And it's, it's even more complicated than that because sometimes the questions can't be resolved either way. Like how many, we, one, of our, one of our proposals is, uh, as you mentioned, eliminating the birthright citizenship requirement. And we, we, replace, we propose replacing that with a rule that you have to be a citizen of the United States for a certain number of years as opposed to being 35 years old and, and having been born here. Well, how many years exactly, right? 
And mm -hmm. we went back and forth yeah. about this. I think your proposal was the one we ultimately went mm -hmm. with, remember, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no principled line you can draw. You know, there's boundaries within reasonable boundaries. But, and so it was interesting to me to see how our positions kind of rubbed against each other and sometimes the edges rubbed off as, as we, we went back and forth. And, and there was, a, you know, a degree to which it was like, well, maybe if I give him this, he'll give me that. And, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit of that. So it was a very interesting dynamic to watch. And what I would want students to know going in is that, well, I would say compromise should not be your number one goal. Um, if compromise is your number one goal, then you have no principles at all. And, there's, and if you have no principles, then there's no reason to have a constitution. The purpose of a constitution is to protect us from the government. And that should be your number one priority. What is, the, what is going to be the rule that will protect me from being oppressed and deprived of my rights? That should be overriding goal. And if you can't reach an agreement that satisfies that, don't sign that document. You know, have the integrity to, to, to say no if you really feel you have to say no. But you'll also find that you really don't have to say no as much as you might think. That, I, th I thought that was an interesting outcome. Fascinating. So interesting that all of the amendments for protecting individual rights, in this case, focused on structures, on uh, uh, like the legislative veto, and that that... 35-year-old compromise is interesting. Tell us about the exchange just so our convention students are aware of the backstory. What was, how did you arrive at the number you did? You mean us? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it just seemed logical. I, you know, again, I don't think there's any absolute reason to pick 15 years, but it seemed we wanted to, um, you know, it obviously a lot of people have talked that it, uh, about the fact that it seems silly in this day and age to require someone who wants to be president to have been born here. Um, but there does need to be some tie. And the question is, how many years of residence or citizenship make the right amount? And it just seemed neither too short nor too long. If you're going to require somebody to have lived here for 25 years, you're going to exclude a lot of people who might have come here in their young adulthood who would be incredible leaders. Um, um, and if you say five years, then you probably, these people don't necessarily have the ex enough of a tie and permanence. And so I think it just sort of, you know, like Goldilocks and the three bears, you know, it's like, is it too, which, which bowl of porridge do I want to eat? You know, the one in the middle, it hmm. seems just right. Um, so again, there was no real, you know, matter of principle. It was really just a, a matter of trying to determine you know, somewhere in this range, more than five, less than 25, 15 seemed right, and nobody seemed to find that problematic. I originally proposed 35, I think, because I, I, I said, well, yeah. just be a citizen of the United States for 35 years was my original uh, proposal. Yeah, there was some discussion about how many years we had to make the requirement to make sure that Ilya Shapiro would still be ineligible. Yeah. <laughs> right. we, we, we all right. agreed so on that. It wasn't a point of principle. But, uh, well, but. well done. Um, Ilan, tell us about the amendment. Amendment. You made amending a little bit easier, although not all that much. How did you come up with the result you did? So in one respect, the amendment on amendments is low-hanging fruit, in one respect, because nobody thinks that this you know, two-thirds of Congress, two-thirds of each house to propose, and three-quarters of the states to ratify is, is optimal. I don't think anybody thinks that. And so what we did, you know, first and foremost is, how do we make it easier to propose amendments? 
at least more amendments should be on the table that can then be discussed in states, in the legislatures and the ratifying conventions. So that was actually an easy lift. I think we reduced that to three-fifths. Mm -hmm. okay, and Caroline will correct me because we're actually working on another yes. constitutional reform project where we did even more amendments to the amendment uh, process. <laughs> so I'm hopeful that I'm, I'm not going to shade these and, and, and con conflate the two. Okay. And then the easiest thing is to say, you know, take the three-quarters of the states down to two-thirds. Mm -hmm. And that's probably more optimal than the two-thirds and, and three-quarters. Still going to be hard, uh, but it's a little bit easier. We also did something, part of a compromise, uh, that Team Conservative originally was not really on board with, which we also provide a mechanism that the amendments, the proposals, can be ratified by states representing three-quarters of the population. Okay, so rather than, so we take three quarters of the states qua states, which is the rule now, we take that down to two thirds, and then we propose, but also if the, a number of states ratify the constitution and those states collectively represent three quarters of the population, we did the math, you need the 30 most populous states, not predictably red, not predictably blue, and so we in Team Conservative decided we could live with that, even though it's... He really did do the math, too. Mm -hmm. He's being literal about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, don't, you know, look, the amendment process, there are a couple principles you have to keep in mind, okay? If we're going to amend the Constitution, number one, the, the majority or that approve of this has to be nationally, geographically distributed, okay? It, the entire support for an amendment to the Constitution can't come from California and New York, and it can't come from Texas and Florida. It has to obtain somehow a nationally distributed majority. That's principle one. And principle two is it must somehow, we must have evidence that this proposal has support over the long term. In other words, it can't just be, you know, that Congress, two-thirds majority, like in Hungary, they can just rewrite the Constitution with two-thirds of the pretty much unicameral legislature. I mean, it is a bit bicameral. So that also doesn't work. So you need proposals that are nationally distributed, that also will take some amount of time to propose, right? And look, the Equal Rights Amendment, whether you think that was a, a good or bad that it was defeated, I'm not sure it yeah, ended uh, up having well, much We impact. don't want to get into right, that right, debate. Some right. of us think it, but it's you been see, ratified. It was but, some, okay. It's got so, a requisite people, number of states. And some people don't think no. the 27th Amendment was properly ratified <laughs> for the same reason she thinks the ERA was properly ratified. Anyway, um, that's very inside baseball yeah. uh, for, the, for uh, those in the audience. But that's the point. You, know, you, you don't want something that could just happen overnight. Uh, and we think the proposals landed pretty, pretty, you know, on a pretty good sweet spot. Caroline? Can I mention just one other thing Please. about that? So um, Team Progressive, um, in our, the Constitution we drafted, did have... Uh, the population proposal, because we thought it was really important that you don't have just a group of small states that can thwart um, what is in uh, the vast, you know, the vast majority of Americans want to see happen with our Constitution. So we had a lower threshold for the percentage, but still, we were happy to see that as a matter of principle. The compromise was really important to us. But one other piece that I wanted to mention as part of the Amendment on Amendments um, is that in the current Constitution, it's virtually impossible to amend the structure of the Senate. That is two senators for each state, no matter what their size. Um, we made that harder than the other um, uh, ways of amending, but not impossible. So basically retained the current numbers, um, the two-thirds and three-quarters um, for congressional proposal and state um, uh, and congressional ratification, state ratification, um, 
but allowed it to happen. Um, so um, I think that was a really important um, element of it because you can't have a real constitution that has one piece of it that's just off limits forever and can never be amended. It's sort of contrary to constitutional logic. Tim, let's uh, tell us about the impeachment amendment. You made impeachment a little harder in the House and conviction a little easier in the Senate, if I've got that right. And tell us about, about that decision also, because our student uh, delegates will be debating it at a particular moment in history where the question of whether you're liable for criminal prosecution after an impeachment acquittal is obviously in the news. To what degree should or did you think about current impeachment debates? Yeah, well, you know, this actually connects a little bit to what we were just talking about because it was it was a thinking I was thinking when you, well well you two were talking about how this is this persistent theme in American constitutionalism about the degree to which you go in favor of the the majority of the nation should decide things uh, as opposed to a situation where the states are protected as institutions you know and what and this was a tension obviously felt at, at the Philadelphia Convention in a great deal in the 1780s. And still today, there are reasons, both principled and pragmatic, why you want to preserve states as institutions and give them sort of a role to play in the machinery. But if you do that too, too much, then you, really, you end up with a very anti-democratic risk where, where, where small states can, can hold out. Um, and, and likewise, the, the tension over impeachment is another thing that has obviously lasted not just as long as the U.S. Constitution has lasted, but, but even a century before then, when you had impeachment crises under the British, under British rule. Uh, the impeachment amendment was really the one I think that I particularly was, was uh, outspoken about. Yes, I was a gadfly about it. And I was, very, I was opposed to what we finally decided on, although, you know, not like... It wasn't something where I, I, I think it was a total disaster or anything. It's just I, I, I didn't like the wording we used. We used wording uh, serious crime or serious abuse of the public trust. Those two separate things uh, were the terms that ended up in the final version. And I, I didn't like this the term serious because in my view it should be very easy to impeach uh, public officials. And we should impeach public officials a great deal more than we do now. In American history, we have impeached a tiny fraction of the public officials who deserve to be impeached. Uh, it, I don't think any reasonable person could say that we have met or exceeded the optimal number of impeachments in American history. That's, that's ludicrous. Uh, and but we, we have, keep reelecting them. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, this is another <laughs> reason why the Constitution protects us against <laughs> democracy. A lot of people think that the Constitution of the United States is designed to facilitate democracy. Uh, Justice um, uh, uh, Breyer, in fact, at, a, at an interview that you did with him, uh, you asked him, as I recall, this was several years ago, asked him what the most important part of the Constitution was, and he answered democracy, which is a word not to be even found at all in the text of the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution is designed to protect us against democracy. It's designed to preserve liberty and uh, primarily to preserve it against democracy, which historically speaking has been an enormous threat to, to liberty. And that's why the Constitution puts so many restrictions on lawmaking. So it's no surprise that the, the, the diluted majority frequently makes the wrong choice. Um, and so for that reason, it should be easy to Im impeach public officials far easier than it is now. And so I was worried about the use of the word serious because it invites debate over what constitutes serious. And I also think it needs to be made absolutely clear that Mere incompetence is 
a crime against the public. For public officials to be incompetent at their job is a threat to the public safety and order, and they should be impeachable for mere incompetence, no question about it. I mean, it, all you have to do is read the history of, say, the Low Countries in the 17th century, where during the Reichsjahr, the, uh, I think that's the term for it, the, the uh, uh, government of Holland was so derelict in its, in its job that England just invaded and took over everything without hardly a fight. It was the Spanish government, Leading, really, wasn't it? Le the well, the, what I'm thinking of is the incident where the, the people were so outraged by the prime minister's dereliction of duty that they killed him and ate him in the streets. I'm not making <laughs> that up. Uh, so th the violence <laughs> that can result from this kind of incompetence is not a, not a laughing matter, really. And so I think it should be very easy to impeach public officials for incompetence as well as other things. And, and to, so I was opposed to the use of the term serious for that reason. Carolyn, Team Progressive, of course, had a very different view of democracy, and yet you were able to agree with Team Conservative on impeachment. Tell us how. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I don't think, uh, well, we, we have a, a you know, very large disagreement over, over this point, but we didn't have a large disagreement over impeachment. And that's because it is an important mechanism to protect the people against somebody who is abusing their position of authority, um, regardless of whether you think the Constitution has um, a democratic structure or, or is designed to prevent democracy. In either case, nobody wants a leader who is abusing the public trust. Um, and so I think there wasn't, there wasn't a, a problem. I think, and we also made it harder. So contrary to your point, we made it harder to impeach in the House. Um, we raised the threshold because it's too easy to impeach in the House right now. Witness what's going on in the moment. Um, so it would be harder to, to actually uh, impeach in the House and easier to convict in the Senate. Um, because as you all know, no one, no president um, has ever been successfully impeached or convicted by the Senate. Um, there have been a handful of judges um, no Supreme Court justice. Um, and so the mechanism is a failure, essentially. It doesn't do what it was designed to do. Um, so we all agreed that, um, and perhaps you wouldn't have wanted to lower, uh, to raise the threshold in the House, but we did agree on that um, ultimately. Um, but I think to the point about the serious issue is um, the other area where I think we generally agreed and we may maybe why the uh, Team Libertarian ended up agreeing to the final language was that ultimately impeachment is a political question. One of the reasons it doesn't work right now <coughs> is because of polarization um, and that the, there's no institutional identification as much as there's a, as a party identification. And that means that if the party of the president is in power, they're never going to impeach, right? Um, it's just not going to happen. So, um, so that's, the mechanism is, is, is not functional. So we wanted to try and, 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 and work that. But nonetheless, the determination of whether there's a serious criminal act or a serious abuse of the public trust is always going to come down to what the politicians think it is. Um, and so I think we all to know, uh, we did spend a lot of time talking about the word serious. <laughs> but, um, um, and I could have lived without serious in there myself. But um, I think maybe Seam Conservative was insistent that serious was important, so. On a word, uh, if you like, on impeachment, and then introduce, yes. please, the legislative veto. Okay, you'll have to remind me to do that. Uh, so, <laughs> on, by the way, a little note on strategic ambiguity. There did come a point. So, so the way that we structured it was for serious criminal acts, 
or serious abuses of the public trust, or serious abuse of the public trust. And at some point, someone suggested, very artfully, why don't we get rid of the second serious? This raises an ambiguity. <laughs> Is the serious modify that was my only criminal yes. act, or also modify Right. The, to public yeah. abuse, right? abuse, abuse of the public court court. Uh, And so this was a situation where, you know, um, we decided strategic ambiguity was not the way to go, mm. I think. Um, I've said before in writing that strategic ambiguity is useful on things not sufficiently important to scuttle what you're talking about, but this was important. This was one side wins and the other loses, okay? That's, so, so strategic ambiguity went out the window. And what, from our perspective, so right, so we raised the threshold to impeach to two-thirds and we uh, three-fifths, and we lower the threshold for conviction to three-fifths. So they're both three-fifths, up from a majority, down from two-thirds. And we clarify the standard. I think that the language we use, serious criminal acts and abuse of the public trust, is what we understand high crimes and misdemeanors to be, not just maladministration, but it doesn't actually have to be crimes. Like, it can be a political question, okay? Now, having said that, though, you know, they debated this in, in 1787 in the convention, right? How independent of Congress would the president be? Initially, they proposed to have Congress select the president, right? And then you barely would need impeachment, you know? And they said, we want the president to be independent, independent branch, not subject to the beck and call of Congress. And we think, as team conservative anyway, that that was ultimately correct. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean we don't think there should be a mechanism to remove someone for inability or what was it, um, uh, inability and, and not incompetence. Maladministration. Maladministration. I think we, it was a bunch of eyes, an inability for sure. But basically, you know, if you're incapa incapacity maybe, uh, yeah, an inability. Right. That's right, it was incapacity. Uh, because, and so the way that we structured it, so right now, Congress basically can expel its own members. Under the 25th Amendment, executive branch officers, the president's own people, can decide if the president is unable to execute the duties of the office. And in our proposal, I don't know if it made it in to the draft of the judicial reform, but in at least the conservative constitution, we, no, I do think it is, this made it into the draft of ours. We provide a mechanism for the judiciary mm -hmm. also yeah. to remove judges who are senile and incompetent. Um, rather, because again, does impeachment cover that? This came up in George Washington's administration. There was a senile district judge in New Hampshire, and they just like assigned him different duties. You know, it would be much easier to just remove him. And so we provide for each branch an internal mechanism to remove its own members for things like incompetence, inability, and incapacity. But when it came to Congress impeaching someone from another branch, we decided to keep the higher standard. And the last thing, by the way, there are, we put a lot of thought into this. Like, who sits in judgment, or who, who, who chairs an impeachment when the vice president is impeached? Who presides? Does anyone know? Mm -hmm. Well, the Constitution says that when the president is impeached, the chief justice shall preside. But otherwise, the president of the Senate presides. Well, the vice president is the president of the Senate. Does he preside over his own impeachment? Mm -hmm. You know, now, Professor Akilah Mar has a clever theory. Well, no one could be a judge in his own cause. Okay, fine, natural law, whatever. We, we fixed it. We fixed it, super easy. When either the vice president or president, you know, the chief justice shall preside, we fix the question of can you be impeached after office? We say yes, six months after and convicted up to a year after. And so on. And then we make them ineligible for holding any office under the state governments as well, mm. if you're impeached. Yeah. So there's extra consequences. Because if Donald Trump had been impeached, you know, he shouldn't get to be a state legislator in Florida. I don't know if that's his aspiration. You know? and <laughs> same thing with President Biden. Like, this is serious stuff. 
And so that was a hotly debated. This might be, might be worth pointing out. This is an example of, of a real divergence from what the 1787 framers would have done. They would have viewed it as shocking, the idea that impeachment from federal office would also, as a function of federal law, disqualify you from a state government position yeah. because they had a much stronger idea of the autonomy of the states, whereas in a post-14th Amendment world, mm. we're much less bothered by that. Absolutely. Did you still Car want me to do the veto, or let's move on? Okay. So. Carolyn, why did you, you put the legislative veto on the table? This is something that uh, Congress used to exercise before the Supreme Court struck it down in the Chada case. It seems geeky, perhaps, but you identified it as a central constitutional reform. Why? Well, um, I would say from our, the progressive constitution, this was probably not a, a, a central constitutional reform, but we followed the basic framework of the existing constitution, and um, but also included um, some places where we thought the court um, had gone awry in its understanding. Um, and the idea is that if the if the Congress very much disagrees with the the way that the executive has interpreted um, uh, the law, um, they can um, exert a, a, a veto essentially. Um, but we made it so that it has to be both houses um, and it has to be signed by the president. There has to be some mechanism to set up this veto process. And I think where we disagreed, um, but we came to a compromise, was that I think the conservatives would have put in the Constitution that there's always a legislative veto. That is, Congress can always react. And our proposal was, um, in order to really reassert the importance and primacy of the legislative branch, it is Article One, after all, we gave it to Congress to decide. Do they want to have a legislative veto in, in a particular statute? They could give themselves the power, or they could even enact a kind of an overall statute that would enable a legislative veto. Um, something like the Congressional Review Act that exists now um, that allows Congress to override regulations. Um, but again, it, it comports with um, Congress acting and the president signing. Um, and so we're, we're consistent with that view. But it, again, it's sort of, in the modern world, um, you know, so many people remark on how dysfunctional Congress is. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, but it has allowed for the aggrandizement of the other two branches with the, um, the courts becoming and the Supreme Court um, super powerful and the executive branch and the president super powerful. And this is, in some sense, trying to reestablish a little more equilibrium. Tim, uh, would reinvigorating Congress uh, make libertarians happy? Yeah, I, I do. I think so. I mean, anything that any kind of veto is, is good for us. Um, <laughs> That's right. More vetoes, please. More um, veto gates. It would. And we proposed in our libertarian constitution proposal, we proposed a, something sort of along these lines uh, where um, uh, states, a certain number of states would be able to undo federal legislation in certain uh, uh, situations. Uh, it is definitely true that the abandonment of responsibility by Congress, particularly through the creation of the administrative state, has led to a situation where the many, if not probably most of what we would consider the laws that regulate our lives are not even adopted by our elected officials. They're, they're created by hired bureaucrats and administrative agencies over whom you have no effective control. 
uh, which is a, a serious concern from either a, an individualistic approach or a democratic approach. The, that's why today uh, it's, a, it's a big issue, this, the, the power of the administrative state. This case, uh, Loper-Bright, that was just argued in the Supreme Court a few weeks ago, is, is on this issue about how much power should these agencies have when Congress, today, what Congress does is it passes these massive, broadly worded, vaguely t worded statutes that say, you know, there shall be no bad things. And then creates a no bad things agency that has, that it, it, that has the authority to, to define what a bad thing is, investigate potential bad things, and punish those bad things. You know, and then the congressman goes home and says, look what I did, I, I solved the problem. And, and then if the no bad things agency does anything wrong, then he can call them before him in front of the hearing and scold them and wag his finger at him and say, that's not what I intended. You know, and, in, and so he gets all the credit and none of the responsibility, none of the blame for, for the bad things that the, these agencies do. So um, anything that will, that will cabin that power and, in, and enable more checks and balances is good for the people generally. Incidentally, this brings to mind another thought, which is that I, I have a, an interesting job. I, I, I'm a primarily a litigator at, at a think tank, the Goldwater Institute, that focuses a lot on state constitutional law. And so in approaching this project, it was also interesting to think about examples from state constitutional law and state constitutional conventions that have wrestled with these ideas and other ideas that have come up throughout the history that elapsed after 1787. You know, more, more specific protections for individual rights, for example. In Arizona, we have you know, a, a state constitutional prohibition on government subsidizing private industry. We have a state constitutional prohibition on special laws, that is, laws that apply to a narrow group of people and things like that. And so it was interesting to approach this project with the thought of, well, we can update the federal constitution with the experience of the states. Impeachment is an example, you know, that, that a lot of states make it easier to impeach state officials. And as a result, state officials have to mind their P's and Q's more than, than they, they all, otherwise And would. they also have term limits for their justices mm -hmm. and their Supreme we, Courts. Speaking of which, we have, uh, we'll take questions in a moment because we have just 10 minutes left and we want to have some audience questions, but uh, why don't we ask, uh, well, Caroline, tell us what the term limits proposal was. Well, so this is another area which I, I was very excited to find agreement on. It actually reflects, I think, a broad agreement across the political spectrum in the, in the United States um, that um, there, it's, it's absolutely um, an inappropriate way to structure uh, a Supreme Court to provide for a life tenure. Um, and it's become more exaggerated um, because historically, um, until the 70s, pretty much the typical um, term of service was more like 15 to 18 years. Um, and it has grown enormously. And in part, we live longer than we used to. So justices live longer, but they also get appointed at much younger ages. It's sort of no longer the kind of capstone of a glorious career in the same way that it was. Um, but... Instead, something that happens to somebody much earlier in their career. And so, you know, you have a kind of situation where um, you have uh, people who have this enormous power who serve for generations, right, who cut across multiple um, generations of, of, of people and political cycles. Um, and that creates, I think, the kind of anti-democratic force that Ilan was mentioning earlier that comes from a, a, a constitution that is virtually unamendable. Um, when you have a court that um, 
uh, sits on such so much power and judicial supremacy in the United States that um, uh, allows the court to exert um, such a pull on all of the most, uh, I mean, we could talk about so many issues that the court um, has, has set its imprimatur on. Um, we recognize case names that is, I think, unusual um, compared to most other democracies. Um, so we agreed that 18 years, we looked at historical um, uh, numbers, um, was a long enough to provide for a, 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 enough independence from the current political forces um, to guarantee that the justices wouldn't just be swayed by politics all the time. But not so long as they would become so uh, indifferent um, to politics um, uh, and, and feel so uh, 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 immune from um, uh, any kind of outside criticism. Um, and so that, I mean, I think it, it's the more that it's studied, the more the people do polling, um, more Americans agree on that reform, I think, than probably any other one we could talk about in terms of constitutional amendments. Um, and so we came to agreement on that fairly quickly. Um, and I think the libertarian constitution, because it was just, and we mean it, didn't have initially uh, a proposal for Supreme Court term limits. But the conservative constitution did. And you, um, to your credit, agreed that uh, you could live with it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so we went forward. Um, and we did also, because you might ask the obvious question, well, what happens if there's a filibuster in the Senate? Um, so we also dealt with that um, and basically um, have a, a, a provision that says, if, and for nominations generally, um, because of the fact that we all agreed that a president should have her cabinet um, and, uh, and so there should be some ability to, to make sure that there isn't an unjustified um, obstruction. Um, and so after three months, um, if there has been no vote, they are deemed appointed, or I can't remember the exact language that we used. And we did the same for, for Supreme Court um, justices, um, for all nominations, essentially, so that the filibuster will be more or less um, kneecapped um, in this. Now, we, I think, in our Constitution, actually did away with the filibuster altogether in the Progressive Constitution, but um, uh, probably you'd like it. But in any case, we agreed in this particular case, in terms of nominations, um, there would be, um, it wouldn't be possible. So that you could get over that hurdle of what the Senate rules are now. Superb. Uh, one or two questions, and I think Dean Lindquist has the mic. I do. So if anybody has a question, I'll just walk over to you with, this is the mic, believe it or not. If you could just speak into this. So sure. We can so fascinating discussion. My question is this, in as much as, Abraham Lincoln referred to the Constitution as a, silver frame, as a silver frame around the Declaration of Independence as the apple of gold. To what extent did the principles of Declaration of Independence inform any of the amendments that were proposed? Great question. Elon, why don't you start with that? Yeah, let me say one thing, if I may, uh, Justice Montgomery, on the amendments. There was a compromise. Caroline, hit everything except one thing, which was we fixed the justices at night. I don't know if you Oh, right. We did, we did that. Was, that. that was the compromise. Right. If we um, were building a constitution from scratch, 18 years would probably be a no-brainer in this day and age. But try to get any conservative on board politically now that they have the Supreme Court. So the deal was you don't get to court pack and we'll accept term limits. That was the deal. And they're staggered every two years, which is why we needed to get rid of the filibuster and, and deem them automatically nominated because the automatic lapsing doesn't help. Right. Well, I was going to uh, say, if you don't, if you wait till the actual natural progression, 
I think we can calculate it, it would be in 2047 or something before you actually had the 18-year term limits fully implemented. Yeah. And that was not acceptable to anybody. But to answer um, Justice Montgomery's question, I think what we saw as the gold of the declaration was different for each team. Mm. And so, for example, I think the libertarians would say, it says right there, inalienable right to life and liberty, right? And I think, uh, the well, it didn't say equality, but the presumption was, you know, um, um, uh, it says people are, well, it does say equality, whether they mm. meant it and how much they meant it is a separate discussion. And so there is that part of it. And then it says consent of the governed. And I think the team conservative focused on consent of the governed. And that's why when we were doing our proposals, we, we didn't talk about abortion, we didn't talk about same-sex marriage, we didn't talk about cultural issues, we talked about things like intergenerational debt. Right? How can the future govern themselves if we saddle them with debt? That is what we took from the Declaration of Independence. How do we become a self-governing society? How do we recreate Madisonian deliberation? And we had some pretty aggressive pedagogical tools so, for example, in our constitution, in the conservative constitution, we make the Senate one senator from each state. So it's only 50, make it very deliberative. And at some point, this was divisive even among the conservatives, we had them deliberate in secret. Just to, you know, so no C-SPAN cameras, you know, no journal, totally secret to increase deliberations. But then someone decided that that was too anti-democratic, it would make us look... I don't know, aristocratic or whatever, and we didn't want that image, so we didn't end up doing that. And so I think that would be our answer to your, to your question. As, as conservatives, obviously the, the act of writing a constitution is the act of balancing these competing objectives of a free society, which is self-government and includes liberty. And I think that means equality too, because it's equality in the rights to self-government and equality in the rights to liberty. So it's balancing these things. But from the Tim Conservatives' perspective, the question was, what is the major flaw in the way our country works today? And it's total dysfunction in the self-governing process. And that's what, what we try to focus on in ours. That's such a great answer to a really important question about how all three teams converged around the ideals of the Declaration, liberty, equality, natural rights, and government by consent, but they disagreed about how to strike the balance. And for more insight about uh, the pursuit of happiness and the framers of the Declaration, check out the book, and I'd love to get it. <laughs> 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 oh, no, but it really is the, it's the central uh, moral philosophy that just defines the founding. And for me, what was so striking is to learn how for the founders, personal self-government was necessary for political self-government, and they thought we couldn't control ourselves as a democracy until we first found control and balance within our own minds. Uh, I think one more question. One thing I've heard arguments for from each side of the political aisle, or every um, representation of the political aisle here, um, has been... <laughs> some aspect of political funding and the impact it has on our elections in the libertarian sense it kind of creates a funnel towards two parties in other senses it kind of puts corporate interest over people interest and limits representation among some people who wouldn't otherwise have access so do you guys think if you had more time to deliberate that political funding and some sort of pause on the completeness of Citizens United would have been discussed and agreed upon? Can I, well, I just, I, I probably not. Um, I, mean, I want to speak for my colleagues. Don't get your hopes up. We would, have been, we would have been totally there, and in fact, the progressive constitution recognized that um, 
Congress could adopt reasonable restrictions on money in, in, in campaigns. Um, we had a number of, of, of what we thought, democracy uh, provisions that would flesh out what we think is already in the Constitution, anchor it more clearly in terms of the right to vote, um, in terms of fair elections, in terms of restricting money in politics, and in terms of, of uh, independent redistricting, uh, in terms of abolishing the Electoral College and having a national popular vote. Um, so for us, those, all those principles were very much um, uh, in, very important in our, in our draft. Um, and we took on the money piece head on. And I know I want you, I know you want to jump in, but I just wanted to speak justice to your question a little bit, just to say, I think we all, we definitely look to the equality sections of the declaration, but we also take the preamble to the constitution very seriously. And I think it's, it's a, um, an aspect of the constitution that is underinterpreted, um, and the values that are embedded in there, um, there's a wonderful book that was written by um, Erwin Chemerinsky, who's the dean of, of Berkeley Law, um, called We the People, where he um, it, uh, talks about how, how we would understand the Constitution better if we actually took the values of the preamble um, it, to understand the later provisions. It's like, it's, we mean it, um, it to that part of the Constitution, too. It's such a great question. We need to... And so, Tim, why don't you have the last word on the Declaration and the Constitution? Uh, with regard to the Declaration of and the Constitution, the, the, there's only one thing in the, that is referred to as a blessing in the Constitution of the United States, and that's liberty. And so, uh, in interpreting the preamble, which is indeed under underappreciated, uh, it, it's a cardinal rule of constitutional interpretation that no provision of the Constitution should be left without, uh, without effect. And unfortunately, I think the courts do tend to ignore the preamble and consider it just to be sort of hortatory. Uh, but it actually the, it, it instructs us to interpret the Constitution to protect individual liberty. Um, the Declaration, of course, is, in our view, a libertarian document and therefore informed everything about what we worked on. However, these amendments that we're talking about were structural amendments. They're not about the nature of individual rights or, or where we draw the boundaries between that and the public good and that sort of thing. So it, it didn't come up in our deliberations because it, it was no more relevant to our deliberations than it was to the de deliberations in Philadelphia in 1787 where they didn't discuss abstract questions of political philosophy because they were all on the same page, you know, philosophically speaking. Uh, with regard to the, to the question about uh, Citizens United, of course the libertarian position is that Citizens United was correctly decided that every individual has the right to devote money uh, to whatever political cause they wish to, in, including doing so in the corporate form. The corporations do have free speech rights, for example, uh, the New York Times, and that, the, um, and, and that therefore we would eliminate all of those kinds of uh, campaign finance restrictions, which are always just attempts to somehow invent a system where money won't control everything. And you know, it's, it's, it's futile because the only way to get money out of politics is to get politics out of money. As long as it is worth, people, worth people's time and money to, in, to lobby the government, they will find a way to lobby the government. And all, you can, all, you, all these campaign finance restrictions, all they do is they're like, like trying to push down on a ball that's underneath a rug. It just pushes it, the ball over to one side and then you're ch constantly chasing it. The only way to eliminate that is a separation of state and the economy and a, a rigid protection of private property rights and limitations on government, which... Team Progressive and Team Conservative are unwilling to endorse. And as a result, they're constantly chasing this ball of campaign finance re reform, hoping that eventually they'll find true democracy, which is hopeless in our view. And my Dear views shall remain a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Uh, we'll come back for more to hear them in May. <laughs> Dear team leaders, the Constitution Drafting Project is among the most inspiring projects the National Constitution Center has been privileged to convene and for being a model of civil dialogue, thoughtful engagement, and uh, devotion to the ideals of the Constitution. Thank you so much. Thank you. This program was recorded at Arizona State University and streamed live on February 1st, 2024. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by Arizona PBS and Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Yara Derise, Cooper Smith, Samson Mostashari, and Lana Ulrich. Check out our full lineup of exciting programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well, or watch the videos. They're available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash media library. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts, or follow us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.